0: This week on the Roommate Podcast.
1: The problem is exactly what you're talking about. The The psychologists, social psychologists call this effect social snacking. Mm. Uh, because what happens is is the, the frontal cortex, the rational part of your brain says, no, I'm being social. You're the teenager up in your room yeah. all day. I've been doing Snapchat streaks and uh, text messages with people all day long. Mm. Like, of course I'm being social. I'm not lonely at all. But our primal social hardware, which has a very deep evolutionary history – evolved in a time where there wasn't even the written word. Mm, And so it does not recognize glowing letters on a piece of glass screen Mm. as having anything to do with socializing. And so I think what you're saying is probably a major source of the social anxiety and the loneliness that gets associated with social media. Facebook doesn't cause you to be lonely. Replacing real world interaction with Facebook does.
0: back. We are back. What up, everybody? This is Hafiz, and I am in the lovely state of Maryland, Maryland, or whatever you like to call it. I am here in a very lovely home. I was reading a description about it, and it was told to be a very nice Victorian-style home, and I can say it is very nice and quite Victorian. (laughs) (laughs) And guys, we have somebody here who I'm really excited about bringing on to the show. He is a author, he is a professor, and he is one of the most pivotal thought leaders that I believe that are under the radar in today's society. Please welcome to the show the one and only Cal Newport. That's my pleasure. Thanks for coming over. (laughs) No problem, no problem. (laughs) Freshly roommates now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Cal, I know who you are, so for the people who don't know who you are, can you give us a bit of an elevator pitch synopsis about who you are, what you do, and all that good stuff?
1: Yeah, well, so I'm a computer science professor at Georgetown University here in Washington, D.C., so... Where we are now is right over the border mm. uh, in Maryland. <laughs> I also write books. Okay. And so recently I've been writing about tech and culture. Mm. The idea being, look, I'm a technologist, I'm a computer scientist, so it sort of makes sense for someone like me to also turn around and say, hey, what's the impact of this stuff? Mm. You know, how does this stuff that I'm working on, the theory I do, the computer science I do, roughly speaking, how does this affect our culture? How does it affect our lives? How do we struggle to make the most of these type of tools? And that's the arena where I like to think
0: and I like to write. I like that because it seems as though, um, you know, in all these science fiction dystopias, there's always like these computer scientists who have, who are always building these new technologies, but they're not really focused on the kind of the law of unintended consequences that come from it. But what you're saying is that as you're building, as you're growing this, you're also examining, okay, what is the ethical response to these technologies that we're building.
1: Exactly. I mean, so it, it's off camera, but above my head right now, above my mantle, it's covers from the classic age, the original age of science fiction. This mm. is H.G. Wells. This is Jules Verne. And what were they doing? They were grappling with those questions for the first time. So with the rise of industrialization, these authors were thinking about, what is this tech? Mm. What's it going to do? And so I put those up there to remind me that what I'm writing in here is that we have to have voices that are constantly interrogating this, pushing back on this, maybe going too far sometimes. That's part of the conversation Mm -hmm, that you're there and you're thinking about it. What's the right way to use it? What's the wrong way? I think our relationship with tech is really complicated. Mm. And, And I think it's only become more complicated. So we have all these tools. They're very powerful. But the art of actually getting these tools to help us to make our lives better, to help us professionally and avoid the pitfalls that come with them, I think is getting more subtle so we need more people getting into it. Mm. You know, what's working, what's not? What's the right way to think about it? What's the hidden trap maybe that we're not thinking about? I think the whole thing's fascinating.
0: Mm. Before we talk in about the robot dystopia the future, <laughs> <laughs> let's go ahead and you know talk about some of your books. So one of your best on the books is obviously Digital Minimalism, in which you talked about the unintended consequences of social media in today's world. For the people who are not quite familiar with their work, can you give us us a reason why you decided to write that book and also what was the basic premise of it?
1: Yeah. Well, it's an interesting story because the book I wrote before that was about the world of work. Mm. So I'd written this book about tech and the world of work. And then after that came out, I started working on a new book about tech and the world of work. That's where my head was. And I essentially put that new book on hold in early 2017 And said, I got to write about tech in people's personal lives. Mm. And the thing that shifted is that the culture around us, I was noticing, was changing. Mm. And so I had always been out there occasionally speaking and writing about some of the issues with tech in our personal life. And for the most part, people thought that I was eccentric. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to get a lot of pushback, right? So I I wrote, for example, an op-ed for the New York Times back in 2016 where I said what I thought was actually a relatively non-controversial statement, which was for young people, I was saying you might be overvaluing social media in your career advancement. Mm. It might not be as crucial as you think in your career advancement. I think we're overselling it. You know, I thought this was a, a non-controversial point. You would have thought that I had written that we should you know, change the American flag or get rid of <laughs> yeah, baseball. Yeah. I mean, it was like oh, the wow. world was shocked by this. The New York Times even Ran a response op ed the next week. Oh, wow. Which they rarely do. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. They went out and found someone from monster.com, their social media <laughs> manager, to write an op ed that yeah. say don't listen to him. Yeah, <laughs> social yeah. media is great. Then you get to early 2017, it's all shifted, mm. right? And there's this unease that began to bubble up about our tech, our phones, how much we're looking at our phones, what's the impact of the phones. And the signal was so strong, Mm. I put a hold on what I was doing and said, this is what I got to write about. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it shifted me. I said, okay, I've been writing about work and tech, which is pretty narrow but interesting, but this seemed much more important in the moment. And so I dived deep into the question of why are people feeling uneasy about their tech and what should they do about it? Hmm. And that was the journey that digital minimalism was all about.
0: Okay. So
1: what did you find in that journey? Well, the interesting thing was is the source of the unease seemed to be Not so much what people are doing when they look at their phone, Mm. which is interesting because if you look at, let's say, the more recent media coverage of the so-called social media backlash, it really focuses on specifically what people do on their phone and what companies do with the data that comes out of the phone. But this is not what I was picking up when I was out there actually talking to real people. It wasn't so much, yeah, what I'm doing or what people are doing with my data is making me upset. It was the amount of time they were spending on it. Mm. And it seemed to be the issue was much more, I used to say, about autonomy than usefulness, right? It was the fact that I do this more than I should or I'm doing this more than I know is healthy or I'm doing this, you know, to the detriment of things that are more important. The proverbial, I'm with my kids Mm -hmm. and yet, you know, I'm doing this. Why am I doing that? Mm -hmm. And it got to a point where by early 2017, people couldn't ignore it anymore. Hmm. They were spending so much time looking at this, so much more time looking at this than they wanted to that people got this sense of unease surrounding that. Mm. And so that's what I discovered was going on. Now, what was interesting about it is, where did that come from? And this is where I was really surprised by the research, right? I mean, what we forget is that the behavior of looking at a phone all the time, which we're incredibly used to right now, is more recent than most of us remember. I mean, if you went back to 2010, and got someone in a time machine, right, and brought them to today, and let them out onto the streets here in Maryland or in Washington, D.C.? You know, what would they notice? Mm, everybody on their phone. That's what they would notice. I mean, everything else would be about the same. Now, the key thing is in 2010, they had iPhones. They debuted to great popularity in 2009. Social media had been around for a while. The people I know signed up for Facebook did so in 2004. All of that was there in 2010. But people didn't do this all the time. Yeah. Today, so I think a time traveler, that, that would be the first thing they'd know. Like the cars look about the same. The tech is about the same. But they would say, why is everyone looking at their phone? Mm. That is more recent than we actually remember. And so when I pushed deeper on that, so what shifted? We had phones. We had social media. People were happy with it. We didn't look at it all the time. Now we do. What changed? And it turns out that this was, in large part, an action of the major social media companies. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if you go back and look at Facebook, this was the first major social media company to have an IPO. When they were preparing for their IPO, They had to figure out how do we get more revenue out of our users, right? We have to get the revenue numbers up because that's what's going to set the stock price. And so they said we have to get our users that use Facebook to use it much more. And they call it active user minutes, but we got to get the active user minutes higher. So how do you do this? And the problem was back then is that Facebook, the way you used it was I post things, my friend posts things. I occasionally go check what my friends posted because I'm interested. That did not get nearly enough active user minutes, right? You would do that a couple times a week. And so their big idea, which changed the entire landscape of personal technology use, was let's change the relationship to social media so it's now about social approval indicators coming inbound towards you, the user, Mm right? And so now you get things like the like button, which was not an original Facebook. Now you get things like retweet, which was not on the original Twitter. Now you get things like photo tags, which was not on the original Instagram. And we get these features. So now that every time you tap on a social media app, what you're getting exposed to is, are people thinking about me? How many people are thinking about me? Is no one thinking about me? Are people mad at me? And that taps into primal social circuits that makes it completely irresistible, completely changed our relationship. Now, instead of logging on to Facebook once or twice a week, we look at it all day long. Once we got retrained to look at our phones all the time, we did that for many other apps and services. And suddenly, almost overnight, we go from Steve Jobs on stage in 2009 saying, look at this thing. It's the best iPod I've ever made. And the phone call features are nice to what we get by 2015-16, which is all the time. Mm. And people looked up and said, "Whoa." That's not what I signed up for when I bought this thing or signed up for those services, and they weren't happy about it.
0: Man, um, I remember I was—I forgot I was reading an article or listening to a TED talk, and somebody defined the phone as a the well, the modern um, iPhone as a bit of a slot machine. Yeah. And the concept behind it was, you know, every time you hit the slots, it gives you that ding, 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 you know, and and at that chance, anything can happen, right? You can yes. win big, you can win small, you know, whatever it may be. But every time you got that sound, you there's a signal that was sent to your brain about the greatest thing can possibly happen. Yep. And then so what they you what they said is that now the phone has become that. Every sound, every beep, every phone call, every email, every message is like this now this slot machine in which our brains are now triggered by the impossibilities of options that can potentially happen, yeah, you know, so it's like, well, I become famous today on Instagram, you know, yeah. well, you know, I get this um, new job that I applied for, so now the phone has become such an addictive element because like you said, it taps into these no primordial instincts.
1: Yeah. And it's the slot machine is not just a metaphor. Mm. So what we actually know is that if you go back a couple decades and look at Las Vegas casino gambling, when slot machines became digital, Mm. you could now program into the slot machines exactly what frequency the different rewards came up, right? When they were analog, this was like weights and magnets, but it was digital. You literally type in exactly what you want. So they did a lot of research. What's the right distribution of rewards that's going to get the little old lady to stay there yeah. all night long? Yeah. Those articles, that research made its way to Silicon Valley. Oh, wow. And so Tristan Harris, who was the he's sort of the whistleblower, he worked for Google. He trained at the famous pervasive, uh, persuasive technology lab at Stanford, where a lot of these ideas come from he was the whistleblower who went on 60 Minutes and said this thing is a slot machine. Mm. And he claims, at least from what he's heard, is that some of the social media companies were actually artificially holding back things like likes so that the distribution closer matches these tables that keeps the little old lady pulling, pulling on the handle. But here's what's complicated about this whole issue is that there's two different things going on here. So there's smartphones, the internet, Web 2.0, the ability to do things like social media, so to express yourself or find other people, which are innovations and really useful, right? And then you have the companies, Mm. you know, capital C, play the scary music, who are adding this layer of exploitation on top of it, where they say, we want to try to suck as much time and attention as possible out of users. And these two things have become melded together. But it makes it complicated to talk about, because if you go out and say, man, I'm really uncomfortable with what these companies are doing, some people will hear, wait, you mean there, there shouldn't be social media, yeah. that I shouldn't be out there, I shouldn't be able to define people or express myself, you think the internet is bad, right, it's all melded together, and I think that's the way the social media companies like it, mm. right, you come after them, they come back, their, their biggest defense for a while for people like me was they wanted it to be binary, social media is bad, or social media is good, because they could win that argument, yeah. because of course there's good things about it. And that was always their push. Like, wait, so you think we shouldn't have phones? Yeah. yeah, <laughs> do you, yeah. Think, do you think there shouldn't be Easy the ability to mates. communicate on the Internet? And yeah. the reality is more, more subtle, right? Uh, and so that's what's made it really rich. And, and so it's really been interesting to watch the way that the culture has responded. But they're sort of in trouble right now because mm. it seems to me that the culture has really shifted on this. And where people used to always be on the company side, I think more and more people are thinking, you know, I like the Internet. I like phones. I'm not sure if I like what Facebook is doing yeah. in particular, right? I think people are having an easier time separating. You can like the tech without loving the tech company that's right now behind it.
0: No, and that's really good because are you familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk? Sure. Yeah, so Gary Vee is always like whenever somebody at social media, he's like, no, the problem is you, da, 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 yeah. which obviously there's troops in that. And obviously we're, we'll talk about that, and we don't want to be the anti-technology because technology is – onward going forth that no human's going to stop, you know? So, you know, obviously we're not demonizing all technology. Thank God for lights. And, you know, instead of having to use, you know, fireplaces for the rest of our lives and central heating. Um, But at the same time, I love the point that you brought up about the, the, I'm not not anti-capitalism, but the capitalistic nature of Silicon Valley where you want to create the most profits. And sometimes in a deregulated market, creating the most profits is not the most ethical thing to do. Yeah, because like you pointed out, like I remember they were even saying how in certain social media apps, even in the tech tech design, they want to design the app. What can I do to retain users, the the, the time of users on this app? Yeah. So they would intentionally structure certain buttons, make certain buttons larger and sure. smaller for reasons of making sure that. This would maximize your time on this app. And a lot of people are subconsciously not being aware of these things and wondering why it's so hard to put down.
1: Yeah. Well, so here's the way, you know, a computer scientist like me, someone who was an early Internet booster, someone who was a nerd that was out front Mm -hmm. on a lot of these technologies. We look at the current setup for things like social media and the current setup seems incredibly strange right? Because those of us who are around as the internet got opened up to the public, this is something that really happened in a large way in the early 1990s. So this is great. It is a decentralized network that everyone can access. And the protocols are universal. That means I can plug a server into this thing here in Maryland. It speaks the same language as a server someone plugged in in Brazil. It's the same language as a server that someone plugs in in Japan, and we can all talk to each other. And, And there's no one that can pull that plug. Mm -hmm. It's a a decentralized network with a common language. The whole world can be connected. Incredibly exciting stuff. What do we see today? A small number of companies are coming along and saying, the internet's too complicated for you guys. We are going to build our own private version of the internet where we own all the servers and they're all within our data centers and we're going to make it easier to use than the regular internet and and then in a low voice. And by the way, we're going to watch Everything you do uh, and try to get yeah. you to, but don't worry about that. But yeah. come on in, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, come yeah, on yeah, in. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be great. And to those of us technologists who remember the original internet, we see this makes no sense. The whole point of the internet was that it was this decentralized universal network that anyone could access, anyone could build tools for, anyone could build websites or express themselves or connect over. And now you have a small number of companies that say, We want to build our own private internets mm. and we control everything. And we watch everything. And that's the source of a lot of the problems. So this was this article I wrote earlier this year for The New Yorker that looked at the the history of that social media and how artificial having a small number of companies that try to unify all the internet over their own private servers, how artificial that is. Mm. And how what connection used to be with the internet was this is a truly democratic universal network that anyone can talk to anyone. These No one owns the whole network. Everyone can use the same protocols. Everyone can talk to everyone. Everyone has a voice. That utopia becomes dystopian. Of course. When you say, let's just have a small number of companies do it. So, so Facebook would say, well, of course this is natural. What do you think? There shouldn't be the internet. The technologists say, this is not the internet. What a crazy idea that you have to have a private internet that's not free. I mean, you don't have to pay money, but you have to pay in terms of time and attention. I mean, this doesn't make, this doesn't
0: make a lot of sense. Hmm. So going a little, let's go backwards into the book. So what were you seeing some of the residual effects of social media usage on young adults? What were some of the things you were noticing doing your research?
1: Right. So there's a, if you look at just the population in general that is you know people my age, let's say, that are unhappy with their phones, it's mainly just I'm looking at this too much. And it's starting to pull me away from things I think would more valuable. So it's a sense of loss in your life, that my life would be more satisfying if there's these things I should be spending more time doing, connecting to my community, connecting to my friends, social interaction that requires a sacrifice of my own time and attention. It turns out that we're wired such that if I have to actually make a non-trivial sacrifice on your behalf, I'm going to feel way more connected Mm. than if I just tap a button, right? Trying to take the friction out of social communication does not match well with our social hardware. But if you go to the young generation, right? I mean, if you go down to adolescence, then it gets scary. Mm. And, you know, this is new research literature. It's uh, epidemiological. These literatures take a long time to coalesce because it's not definitive, right? It's correlational. But the experts that I trust who are really crunching crunching these numbers are very distressed by what they see. And in particular, if you look at adolescent women and look at, let's say, hospitalizations for self-harm, hospitalizations for suicide attempts, and you plot that by when they were born, as soon as you get to that first year in which social media and smartphones were ubiquitous in their adolescence, skyrockets. And that's, I think, the scare, one of the scariest graphs in public health right now. And the reason behind that is? Well, so they don't know exactly why. There's something about increased, uh, the sort of excessive phone and social media use that tends to make anxiety and anxiety related disorders skyrocket. Once you take anxiety anxiety related disorders and really push it up, you're going to have a lot of downstream effects. And, you know, this came to my attention years ago. I was at a major university. I was doing a talk. And it was sponsored by, in part, the mental health services for the university. And so I was chatting before the event with the head of the mental health services for this university. And she was telling me, she's like, you know, everything we see these days is anxiety and anxiety-related disorders. And she's like, it didn't used to be that way. We didn't used to see that much of that. We just saw the normal things that you would see from a mental health perspective in teenagers and people in their young 20s. And she says, it's shifted. It's all anxiety. And the number of people coming in is an order of magnitude larger, right? And so I said, well, what's going on? And she didn't even hesitate. She said, oh, phones. It was that first cohort of college students who showed up glued to the iPhone. So this would have been 2011, 2012. As soon as that cohort arrived, the mental health service saw tons of people coming in anxiety anxiety related disorder so there's something about this constantly being connected or something about the actual interactions you're doing or some sort of combination there within that does not play well
0: with our human brains man so one of the things i like about you is you like theories and i'm a big theory guy (laughs) so obviously let's let's play a little pseudoscience yeah because some of the some of the theories i was i was thinking about so um one of the things that you pointed out was a lot of time with these longitudinal studies, it takes a long time to be able to really analyze the effects of social media on the young adult lives. Yeah. For example, like in the 20s, they really couldn't understand what the effects of cigarettes were going to be. Yeah. You know, it had to take years, and unfortunately, a lot of lives lost and diseases gained – For people to understand the the long-term effects of these things. So I think, unfortunately, what's going on is that a lot of these real long-term effects, we won't be able to know for maybe another 10, 20 years, hopefully earlier. But that's just my theory right there. But one of the things I noticed was that in... And I I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, I think... Um, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, looking back in time and, and, and not just looking down upon them, but also having chronological nostalgia, acting like the 1400s were like the good old days <laughs> when, yeah. you know, typhoid fever wasn't, yeah. <laughs> wasn't the ideal. So obviously there's pros and cons from every period of time. But one of the things I was, I was saying was that in the year, let's say before social media era, the internet era, or the television era, like if you were to simply stay inside all day and just not have any human interactions, it's only a period of time before you will go insane. Like it, yeah. will, it will negatively affect you. And so what happens is after a certain period of time, you stay inside and what you do, you earn in human interaction because we're obviously social creatures. So therefore you will go out, interact with other people yeah. to be able to quench that desire. Yeah. And so I kind of gave it the correlation of what social media has done now is that it's given us the faux... Perception of human interaction. Yes. Where actually, as social creatures, we need this human to human interaction. But what social media does, it temporarily numbs the need for human interaction because it, it gives us the feeling of being close, it gives us the feeling of being connected. And so, a lot of people supplement that with supplement human interaction with digital interaction. And because we've been social creatures experiencing physical interaction for thousands of years, we're not built for that. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the anxiety and depression and issues uh, rise up. Yeah. And um, I'm just curious, what were your what are your thoughts about that theory?
1: I think it's exactly right. And in fact, I, I've done a lot of work on the evidence for exactly that theory being true. Mm. And I think it's an important one, right? Because what you do when you're on, let's say, Facebook or something like this, it's directly not negative. In fact, there's there's these studies now. These studies all interestingly have a Facebook data scientist as a co author there, but there's yeah. these studies where they essentially put people in a lab and it's not exactly this, but essentially uh, let's look at specific behaviors on Facebook and correlate it to how you feel. And, you know, if you're leaving a comment on a, say a family member or a friend's Facebook wall or something, it, you feel better. It's not bad, mm-hmm. right? The problem is exactly what you're talking about. The, the psychologist, social psychologists call this effect social snacking, mm. Uh, because what happens is is the, the frontal cortex, the rational part of your brain, says, no, I'm being social. You're the teenager up in your room all yeah. day. I've been doing Snapchat streaks and uh, text messages with people all day long. Like, of course I'm being social. I'm not lonely at all. But our primal social hardware, which has a very deep evolutionary history evolved in a time where there wasn't even the written word. Mm, And so it does not recognize glowing letters on a piece of glass screen Mm. as having anything to do with socializing. And so I think what you're saying is probably a major source of the social anxiety and the loneliness that gets associated with social media. Facebook doesn't cause you to be lonely. Replacing real world interaction with Facebook does. So it's exactly like if you're hungry all the time and you're eating junk food yeah. in the moment you're like yeah man these chips are great like yeah. i don't feel hungry anymore but it's not going to end up well because our body did not evolve for doritos right? that's yeah, not what it's yeah. expecting so i think you're actually on to something that's uh completely right is yeah. that the frontal cortex thinks you're being social the whole rest of your brain i get into this in digital minimalism the degree to which our brain is basically a social computer mm. like that's most of what it does the whole thing is geared up for social interaction yeah. right because the absolute core to our species survival is the ability to navigate what uh, anthropologists call dyadic connections. This one-on-one interactions with people, the way that our our voices move, the way we move our bodies, navigating these complicated in-person social networks, watching people chatting with people. This stuff is so crucial to our survival throughout all of our deep history that most of our brain is actually dedicated to this. And when you replace it with, you know, some pixels in the shape of a smiley face, doesn't know what that is mm. it thinks you're lonely yeah. your frontal cortex is like look at the streak i have with my <laughs> yeah, friend yeah, this yeah, is yeah, great yeah, i'm the yeah. most social person you know and, and the most social person i know the rest yeah. of your brain is like my god we're yeah. miserably lonely when's the last time we talked to someone
0: and that point i love the point that you brought up about the food because that was one of the illustrations i gave as well i said what if there was a pill that temporarily removes your need for hunger Right. Yeah. And so at that time, obviously, you wouldn't be hungry. You wouldn't need food. But over time, your body would begin to suffer because it still has that biological need for re- new sort, um, resources and nutrients. Yeah. So you can you can use a pill to remove the desire, but your body still needs that substance. So the same thing with social media. What's happened is that if you your body still needs that human interaction. But if you're trying to use social media, like I said, to. Remove that need, your body is still suffering, which is, like you said, why people continue to experience all the difficulties and yeah. hardships from it.
1: Well, that's that's why social psychologists use this phrase, social snacking, because mm-hmm. when you replace eating real food with just snacking, it works in the short term. Yep. But eventually you end up malnourished. There's a related effect that's happening. If we broaden beyond social media, just in general, this phone as a source of instant distraction, the other primal drive that's being subverted is boredom. hmm so like, in general, whenever there's a human feeling that's very, very strong, there's a real reason for it, right? I mean, it, it must be driving us towards something, right? When we feel hunger feels incredibly strong, boredom is a really strong feeling. It's incredibly uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? So what's the point of boredom? Well, our default nature, like any animal, is to try to conserve energy, right? Because if you're, if you're out there running around, burning off all your energy, you, you don't know when you're going to find your next food, and maybe you don't have enough energy to get away from the lion, so we, we typically want to conserve energy, but humans are different in the sense that we also get up and build things mm. and build cathedrals and governments and ideas. And we do action, right? We do prospective action. Boredom drives us to do that. Mm. I don't think a cat feels boredom. The yeah. cat is fine <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> yeah. We feel boredom. Why? Because that's what gets us to actually get up, expend energy and do things that are deeply satisfying. The phone subverts it. Mm. So now you're feeling boredom. It typically would be if this was 15 years ago and it's a Saturday and, you know, there's no college football game on and the rest of the TV is bad that day because Saturday TV is not that great. You're not just going to sit there. You're like, okay, I got to do something, right? I'm bored. Today, you hit this and there's an algorithm and billions of dollars of investment to kind of give you this snack Mm. temporarily makes the boredom go away. Okay, but here's the problem. If you use this to get rid of the boredom, you're not doing the stuff the boredom was supposed to drive you to do. And this was a big thing that came up in my work in digital minimalism, is that when people stepped away from a lot of this, that was the big thing they realized was lacking, was the all the other stuff that people used to do with their time that was hard but satisfying. And getting back to that was often a hugely valuable experience for them. And they didn't realize the degree to which they had just been pushing all of that out of their life because you could just get rid of the the boredom, just click on this. And they don't have the boredom that drives them to say, no, no, you got to go start this community organization. You got to get down there and join this thing and be a part of it. Like you got to pick up this skill. You're going to learn how to do this sport and it's a pain and it's going to hurt and it's going to become a really important part of your life. You get rid of the boredom, you don't do that. And so this was one of the big surprises from my work was the degree to which that book ended up not really being so much about technology and really about all the other things that the technology was keeping us from doing. And this was the key to the happiness of all these digital minimalists, is that once they pared this down to the essentials, they had this extra time. And when they invested in the stuff that's hard and satisfying, the change in terms of their anxiety and satisfaction, enjoyment of life, it was a massive change.
0: Um, there's a really great book. Um, are you familiar with, with an author named Johan Hari? Yeah, yeah. So, Yohan Hari, did you read um what was the last one?
1: So he's, this is like Sapiens, Homo Deus. No, no, Yohan no,
0: no. Hariri. Yeah, Lost
1: Connections. Lost Connections. And, yeah, perfect. And, uh, Chasing the scream. Chasing the scream. Yeah.
0: So Lost Connections was an absolute sensational yeah. read. I actually loved that book. Yeah. And it and it and it really touches in a in a obviously not he wasn't talking about technology, but you see when he talks about the nine different causes of. Depression yeah. and a lot of it you know was based upon a disconnection from the natural world and one of the points I love that you brought up is that uh, and man I think I don't want to butcher Johann Hari's illustration, but there was this quote in the book when he was I think he had like a, he got sick. And then eventually, I believe he was like throwing up or something. The apple. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so then eventually it was like a lot of times we want to remove the symptoms, you know, like, okay, let's stop throwing up and we just take some medicine. But no, the symptoms was letting you know there's something wrong with the body. And because he allowed the symptoms to take place, then they were able to say, you know what, if you didn't treat this part of your body, you would have died so the symptoms are actually pushing you towards something good and one of the issues that go that he talked about obviously with depression is at times obviously you can get into the argument whether it's you know the chemical imbalances or the some um sociological factors, but the point he's bringing up is that it's telling you something's wrong here. Yeah. And then therefore I need to go ahead and make a change to it. And so one of the things I notice is that in this modern society, we try so much to remove a lot of the the natural human obstacles or pain points that was actually meant to one make us human yeah. but to push us towards something greater. And I love that point about the about boredom is actually not a, a problem, but a natural part of the human life, yeah. which should push you to greater things. But then, like you said, when you refuse it, when you remove that, yeah, you're no longer pushed to greatness. Yeah, this is the uh, the anti nausea medication, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. You look at the whatever; it's palliative. I mean, you know how how common this is, especially for young people that I worked with for the book. The degree to which they are papering over so many existential crises in their life by doing this. And how uncomfortable it is at first when you take this away, because this is the painkiller. And people have deep, you know, you're, you can avoid so much that's hard about your life by doing this all the time, mm. right? It, 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 it captures your attention, it papers it over, it gives you burst of chemicals, and you pick it up as soon as you wake up and you, you use it till, till you go to bed. But it's like Johan with that poison apple, which, mm. by the way, I never thought about that, but poison apple, that seems like that's somehow profound, I yeah, guess. Yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But like with, with, with Johan and the poison apple, you don't get to, wait a second, no, 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 this is hard stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and sometimes that hard stuff is as simple as, I'm not really happy with what I'm doing with my life. I, you know, this is not, This yeah. is this is making me uncomfortable, yeah. but let me just... I don't have to think about it, Mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes it's really, really hard. Like really hard stuff has happened and I I don't want to think about it. Um, But when you have to face it, face the discomfort, and say, well, what what am I going to do about this? Right? I mean, that's where growth comes from. Like, what am I going to do about this? And again, none of this was on my radar. Yeah, I'm a tech guy. <laughs> yeah, and I thought I was writing a book about tech. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what's going on with this tech? How do, you know are we using it too much? Why? How do we use it less? And the whole thing is it ended up about psychology, yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Like Aristotle becomes yeah. a big player in yeah. this human satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Johann's work was very influential for me, among yeah. a lot of other a lot of other sources i mean it so much of this has nothing to do with tech and a lot to do with human you know humankind
0: man and and on a side note before we jump back into the the technological issues one of the things i noticed was being just a random thought that i just had yesterday being social creatures that were living in you know these small bands of 150 150 people yeah. what was what happened was whenever you and I had issues, right? Yeah. Let's say we had a conflict. Because of the proximi- proximal nature of our existence, I would eventually have to deal with you, yeah. and I'll de- eventually will we'll be forced to, for our own existence and our well-being, to deal with the conflict at hand. Yeah. So what happens is, is that this real human connection actually pushes you towards resolving conflicts. But what has happened now is, you know because the, you know, obviously the, the digital age spaces us out, if I have an issue with you, I can just shut you off. I can just block you. I can just turn you off. You know what I mean? I can just simply... Or attack. Exactly. And so now we're no longer forced to interact in a normal human-to-human interaction. So a lot of times when you see people like, it's hard to make friends and it's hard to build relationships, you're seeing that this is a byproduct of, like you said, if you're not forcing yourself to go through the hard points about life, which has been a natural part of our human social development, you then have all these unintended consequences that begin to affect negatively the other aspects of your life.
1: I mean, it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I mean, something I discovered I didn't know about at all when I was working on that book is actually how hard conversation is
0: Mm.
1: you know we take it for granted i know how to talk to someone Mm. actually it's a really hard act which you know in 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 part because if, if you you know see someone whose neurological development maybe takes out some key cognitive aspect involved in conversations it's very difficult oh yeah to interact with them because this is a subtle dance so how do we get good at this? We practice it. We practice it all throughout our childhood and in particular in our adolescence years. You, know, you remember feeling awkward when you're a teenager, you know, you're at the party and you're like, yeah. uh, I don't know, right? Like you're high, why we're highly attuned to it. But you know what we're doing? We're practicing. Mm-hmm. We're practicing, practicing, practicing. And by the time we're adults, we're pretty good at we can sit down across from someone. Maybe we don't even know them. We can interact. That takes a lot of practice there's this interesting effect happening now with, let's say, 20-somethings in the workplace where they skipped a lot of that practice because the research shows that they're much more likely to spend time inside communicating digitally than going out there and interacting in person, going in the parties. They're not getting the reps. And then they get out there in the workplace and they don't want to talk to the client on the Mm -hmm. phone. They don't want to talk to their boss in person. They want everything to be on email uh, because that's... Practiced. It's something that we actually spend a lot of time on. So yeah, you you get rid of that. You get rid of these deeply human things. And more generally, what I've learned is, and this is not just about tech today. This is a a lesson that goes throughout our history. But whenever you take a deeply human, very old drive and start monkeying around with it, bad stuff happens. I mean, look what happened to the health of. Western civilization, once we started monkeying around with food. Mm-hmm. And we said, you know what? We can produce food in factories, mm-hmm. and we can have giant companies trying to do it, and we can try to squeeze you know, profits out of it. We got incredibly unhealthy because we took something that was very deep in the human drive, which was eating and what we craved to eat that had been there for hundreds of thousands of years, and we started messing around with it. Mm-hmm. And we get a giant obesity epidemic in the country. So now we're taking something that's just as primal, like boredom and sociality, and we have essentially, you know, guys in hoodies and Silicon Valley incubators yeah. saying like, you know, hey, why don't we try this? Or let's, let's just completely change the way we interact. Yeah. And, and where are these ideas coming from? It's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in a dorm room somewhere. Mm. Like, well, what if we interacted this way instead? Or what if we use the phones this way? And it's not that it's ill intended, but you take something that is so deeply human and just start messing around with it. You shouldn't be surprised if you look up ten or fifteen years later and see that there's all sorts of unintended negative consequences.
0: No, that's so good. And that point about what's deeply human, I think that's some of that's probably one of the biggest contentious points in, you know, the I would argue in the Western philosophical field, because we're really trying to redefine humanity. And there's obviously a lot of negative things of the past that obviously we gotta remove and we gotta yeah. we gotta address, but then there's a lot of really really important pivotal parts of humanity that like a house you just certain things you just don't move right yeah. so if we have an issue in the house yeah let's go ahead and let's move this table let's move this chair let's maybe you know redo this window but if we're talking about removing foundational pieces yeah. if we're talking about removing pillars that keep things intact yeah. there's going to be unfortunate disastrous consequences
1: yeah i'm with you on that i mean you yeah. have to be careful when you make changes at scale yeah which is what we're doing. And why are we trying to make these changes, let's say particularly in our technological lives, though your point's obviously much broader. Yeah. But let's just say particularly in our technological lives, why are we making these changes at such big scale? That's simply because of a, an underlying investment economic model. Mm-hmm. This is this unicorn model that for a very small class of venture investors – the idea of scaling up a company to a multi-billion dollar level gives you a hundred to a thousand X return on your investment, which is very exciting. But that's mainly the reason why we have massive tech companies who every tweak they make to an algorithm is going to affect a billion people. It's really dangerous to mess around with things at that scale. And there's no real reason why we need especially on the internet massive conglomerate companies trying to control their own private versions of the internet there's the internet doesn't need that yeah we have the internet anyone could plug in a server any small company can be just as accessible as any large company it's mainly just an investment model but the result of that investment model is now we're we're, we're messing around with human interaction human activity at massive scale yeah and uh, basically ideas that are coming out of the whim of a small
0: number of people over in northern california so it's an interesting time so do you are you a proponent of parents and a, and human adults should hold themselves and their children accountable for these technologies and the potential damages of it or are you a proponent of reg, um, having regulations for these big companies because they should not be able to have this much power and control over the masses
1: yeah well I'm not against regulation. I just haven't seen any regulations I think yet that's going to move the needle. Okay. I think it's really hard to do i mean so, so I've looked at i mean I'm, I'm pretty well aware of those efforts. I think some of them are, are useful, but like a lot of the efforts focus on data privacy. It turns out data privacy is really hard to legislate. Like even the notion of what it means for this information is something you keep private, We think that's an obvious thing, like oh, like you're not allowed to give it to other people, but what if I give other people other information from which they can infer that right? So what if I say I know how much uh, I know your age, and the law says i'm not allowed to tell other people your age. so what if I tell people? Uh, well, you know, his age is between this and this, mm-hmm. you know, they can infer the age, I didn't quite give the information. Now, that's a trivial example. But there's actually a lot of really good work, a lot of mathematical work on it. it's almost impossible to nail down. And so, you know, as a computer scientist who knows about these issues, I say, you know, I'm glad you're looking at it. But good luck coming up with legislation that's going to work. Or you have like Cinder Hawley's idea that we can somehow legislate out addictive properties of social media it's almost impossible to do. You mm. can't nail down everything yeah. that's going to make people want to come back to it. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not uh, against those efforts, but the place I think we can have profound change almost right away is in our own relationship with these tools. Okay. You know, I mean, this is where why I focus on that in digital minimalism is that uh, people can have these transformations that take them a few weeks and their life is significantly changed. Like that's something that you could start, you could start one of these, you know, digital declutter experiences. You could start that tomorrow, three weeks from now. Your life can be massively better. Mm. So I see there's really big, low-hanging fruit right now in just changing the way people think about these tools and use them while we try to figure out the bigger changes. I mean, I'd be happy in a world where we don't have these massive social media conglomerates. I don't think they serve any technological or social good. So yeah. um, I'm, not, I'm not the one out there trying to defend or keep them in place. Yeah. But I think even while they're still there, we can take the rug out from under them.
0: Okay. So what are what are some of the components of the digital detox that you suggest are really beneficial for young adults?
1: Yeah. So, so what I ended up preaching to people is you got to start from a blank slate. So when I, when I went out there and looked at what works, what doesn't, mm-hmm. Coming at the problem, so let's say you're uneasy about how much you use tech, right? That's our starting premise. Coming at it from the top down, like, well, let me tweak this and tweak that. You know, maybe I'll change my notifications or what if I move some of these apps to the other screen on my my iPhone? Doesn't seem to work for most people, Hmm. right? The, The cultural and technological forces are so strong that you end up more or less where you are. It also doesn't seem to work if you come at this just from the negative angle. So if your approach is, I am unhappy with how much I use this stuff, so I'm going to use it less. I'm trying to reduce a negative. That also doesn't seem seem to work, right? That doesn't read last, lasting change. So what does seem to work is instead coming from the bottom up. So basically getting rid of everything, taking a beat, right, to get back in touch with, okay, what do I care about? What do I want to do with my time? And then starting from scratch. Mm. All right, what do I want to add back in? Why am I adding it? Is it really giving me a lot of value? What are my rules for how to use it? So basically take the, the closet that's been cluttered with all this random stuff in the last 10 years, empty the whole thing out, step back and say, what do I really want to put in there? And where do I want to place it? And then second, come at it from the positive angle. So now you're saying, these are the things I really care about. The tech I use, I use because it amplifies those things, right? So it's not about getting rid of things you don't like. It's about boosting the things you really like as much as possible, mm-hmm. That's the two key components to what I preach in the book. That seems to last, right? So the people that do that completely change their relationship with tech, huge improvement in the quality of their lives. The people who come at it from the top down, oh, I'm going to do a, you know, I'm going to take a night off each week. I'm going to get some digital wellness app to help me Mm -hmm, stay off it. That doesn't last. Mm. It doesn't last. I mean, how many people do you know that says, like, yeah, I'm done and quit Facebook? And then they're
0: back. They're back. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. And definitely, guys, if you haven't get, gotten digital minimalism, go ahead and cop that book. And cause I want to give all the good parts away for, for free. Um, but I want to talk about another, another really interesting theory that you talk about, which is about the pursuit of passion for happiness. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that's kind of the biggest conversation going on today as yeah. well. Chase your passion, chase your passion, chase your passion. But you actually have a different views on that. Do you mind sharing some of that? Yeah, yeah. I got yelled
1: at a lot for that one. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I wrote this book back in 2012. And I I wrote it at a time when I was on the job market, right? So the whole idea, the whole premise was how do people end up loving what they do, right? Because it's one of these high leverage points. I'd finished grad school. I was about to go on the academic job market. I wanted to take take a step back Mm -hmm. and say, you know, if I'm ever going to get the most benefit out of knowing the answer to that question, it would probably be right now, Mm -hmm. right? This is the high leverage point in my life. And because I was a writer, I kind of had the luxury of, well, if I write a book about it, I'll get people to talk to me. I can go out and and, and do the research. And so that was the premise, right? And so I wrote this book and the, the sort of the headline idea was the dominant piece of career advice then, and I assume it's probably still the case now, was follow your passion. And the more I looked into it, the more I I found that leaving your career advice at that phrase was causing more harm than good. Mm. And the key distinction to make right off the bat is there's a difference between saying it is good to be passionate about your work or that it's good for your goal to end up with a job you're passionate about. Those are good things. But the particular advice to follow your passion was problematic And in particular, this idea that most people have the pre-existing passion wired in and that what you need to do to enjoy your career is to, through introspection, identify this pre-existing passion and then use that as the foundation of your career choices and then you'll be okay. Mm. That hypothesis does not have a lot of support. In other words, if you study 10 people who are passionate about their work, probably nine out of 10 of them did not follow a pre-existing passion. Mm. Their path was more complicated. And so in that book I was trying to tell the more complicated story. So we can't dumb this down to this fairy tale that everyone is wired for something, and as soon as they find it they're going to love their work because it's more complicated than that. And if they think this is the way it's supposed to happen, they end up miserable. You're like, "Well, why don't I love my work? I must have found the wrong passion. Switch a job, switch a job, switch a job, switch a job." And and then you end up completely self-doubting, completely anxious, and constantly thinking that, "Okay, I'm somehow falling short." When you tell the more complicated story, here's how people often really do end up loving their work, then you're giving people more of a shot of actually getting there. At least yeah. that was the idea. And what is a more complicated story? Well, a lot of times passion is cultivated, right? So the, the sense that I love my work is something that is cultivated over time as opposed to the starting condition.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And one of the main ways it's cultivated is through skill development, right? So this is one of the, the things that came up often is that as people get better at something, it gives them more control over their work. It gives them more autonomy. It also gives their work more impact and it touches some sort of deep instinct we have for craftsmanship as they get better at something. And if they leverage those skills properly, the amount of passion they feel for their work can actually increase, which is why the title of the book was a Steve Martin quote, be so good. They can't ignore you. Mm -hmm. That was his advice, right? That was his advice to the aspiring entertainers. He's like, be so good. They can't ignore you. Lots of other good things come. He was actually right. Uh, if you take a skill now, okay, we're not throwing darts yeah, at jobs, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. No, no. I mean, you, you gotta be, this is something I'm interested in. I'm interested in this field. It's a good match for me. Um, you know, it has interesting opportunities in it. If I was to get good, like that's all important. We're not throwing darts here, mm-hmm. but we're also not looking for, this is the magical right job. And I'm going to love it from day one. It's really I've, I've picked the right type of job. There might be seven different fields that all pass this, right? This is not about the one job that you're meant for, but once you make the choice, you become so good, you can't be ignored. That is often the foundation of really deep passion for the work.
0: No, this is really good. And let's, 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 um, let's wrestle with this idea real quick. Cause I actually was thinking about this idea and I'm going to jump around, but I'm going to get to this point. One of the things I realized was that one of the conversations about finding your passion, finding your passion, do what makes you happy, you know, you work a job that you love, all these things was that I, I wondered how much, going back to the part about redefining humanity that is a very new narrative that couldn't be that couldn't be true any any time but today yeah in the year 1890s you know you know or let's go 18 1970 yeah let's even, go 1970 yeah, i traced you know? it back 1970
1: yeah. even this wasn't here yet yeah, yeah.
0: exactly and so even simple in the 1970s when we've, most people were working in factories or working in certain places like there was no such thing as this this you, there's human fulfillment coming through, you know, take, working a job that I just happen to love from day one. Yeah, and you, we just see that humanity hasn't evolved from that, but people have been happy, people yeah. have been satisfied, people have lived fulfilled lives. And especially if you go around to different parts of the world where people aren't working the most ideal of jobs and being the doing the most ideal of things, and I and I realized a lot of my friends, especially the young adult ones, who were fed this narrative, yeah. like you said, they were depressed, they were sad, they're like. I wonder what's my thing, what's my, yeah. what's my passion, what's my, and, and they were under the impression that every single person is supposed to be, you know, like a, you know, child prodigy who always was super talented at what they did and yeah. knew it from the beginning. Yeah. Or an athlete. Like exactly. A- athletes
1: always know, because, you know, they're really talented. Exactly. It's not, an, it's not a generalizable example. And I
0: love that point, because it's like, we, unfortunately, will highlight and celebrate those stories and make it the norm. When it's not. It's actually the exception, it's not the rule. Yeah. So everybody else who's actually living life, who doesn't experience this emotion, now feels lesser than, because they don't somehow have this burning desire and passion, yeah. and then like you said, then you go from job to job, from person to person, from whatever it may be, from city to city, looking for this you know, mythical passion, but... Like you said, it's cultivated in the most unconventional of ways.
1: No, you can do the history on it, Yeah, right? I mean, where does this come from? Well, the phrase, follow your passion, you can't find it used in this context in the English language until the 1980s. Mm. You don't see it used regularly until the 1990s. I mean, it's new. So where did the underlying concept come from? It's two things. So there is a, a former Episcopalian priest named Richard Bowles. Okay. Who was counseling? So after he lost his position in a congregation, went to work essentially at the front office, mm-hmm. right? a local yeah. office for the church, and he was counseling other ministers who were losing their positions. And he wrote this pamphlet called "What Color Is Your Parachute?" Mm. Right. This was essentially the first time you really saw nailed down specifically this notion of well, maybe you should first figure out what it is you want to do, mm. and then match that to a job. Mm. Right? to us this is just the air we breathe but yeah. this was and this was the late 1970s early 1980s this was a really big idea what color's your parachute was what what type of job you're supposed to do now this was at a period of post-industrialization this was right at this period where the the old model of you know if my dad worked in the factory I work in that factory unless I was really bright and then maybe I would you know, jump up the management or become mm-hmm. a lawyer, right? Yeah. Or, or if my dad was a doctor, I'd be a doctor, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it was fine. You, you lived in your town. You didn't go far. You went to your state university. A lot of that was falling apart when the, the sort of industrial sector of our economy was was falling because of, of it rising international competition. We had the rise of knowledge work. People got unrooted from location. You had to move around more to find jobs. Globalization. So, yeah, so it became a complicated time. Mm-hmm. And so this was one of the solutions that was offered. So you have this notion, what color is your parachute? Then we have Joseph Campbell. Right, so Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey. There's this famous Bill Moyers special that was done in the 1980s right around the time Star Wars got popular because George Lucas was saying, "Yes, Star Wars is Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, right? So there's this uh, Bill Moyers went out to Skywalker Ranch and Mm -hmm. and did this thing that everyone saw, and that introduced Joseph Campbell's phrase, follow your bliss, Mm. to a wide audience. Those two things came together. What color is your parachute? Follow your bliss go forward a couple of years, follow your passion is the, the offspring from that. So it's an incredibly new idea that a match of what you want to do to your job is going to give you satisfaction. And what we've done is ex- essentially like purified that thing. We have this ultra purified, yeah. ultra strong strain of what was kind of common sense ideas, yeah. which was, okay, if the economy is uncertain, uh, if you can't just stay in your own town, then maybe you have to do some reflection now about what you want to do. Complete common sense but it got purified and, and refined again and again until now it's for some reason our genes have encoded mm-hmm. us that I'm meant to be an audio engineer <laughs> yeah, or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that if you don't do that, you're going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm completely with you on it. It's a very new concept. Yeah, Intrinsic passion as a foundation for career choices is an incredibly new concept. Almost all of both Eastern and Western thinking on this issue up to that point was, satisfaction, passion, meaning, feeling of, of good affect comes from action. It comes from living right. It comes from living well. It comes from philosophically speaking, constructing a life that you're proud of. This was always the way we thought about it. Mm-hmm. About 30 years ago, we said, no, no, no. It's because you discovered that you're supposed to be a software developer instead of a project manager, which mm. I think is kind of crazy.
0: And the, another point is that it's not sustainable. Yeah. Because you definitely see it in the, um, I think you see a lot of in the entertainment spaces where everybody wants to be an athlete or an actor or a musician, and they believe that's my passion. And then they will literally forfeit, you know, a large chunk of their lives pursuing these things. Yeah. And then, you know, feeling like I'm supposed to be that no matter what. And then, Eventually, they realize that maybe I don't have talent for that or whatever it may be. And now they're living depressed and feeling meaningless because, you know, I'm not living out who I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And so I've I've noticed that. And what do you what do you for people who are trapped in that? What do you say to them?
1: So in that book, I laid out this alternative framework that I called career capital theory. So essentially, the idea is as you develop rare and valuable skills, it's as if you're acquiring more of what I call career capital. That career capital is what you then invest to make your career a bigger and bigger source of passion. So if you have more career capital, you can invest it for things you want. Okay, I want to travel. You're better, you can do it. A lot of career capital, you got that control. I want more time affluence, right? I want to work only a few days a week or something like that. Hey, if you're great at something, I tell those stories, you can get away with that. I want to have impact on the world. The better you are at something, the more impact you can have. So career capital is what you invest to get back to traits that make great jobs great. And so then the whole idea becomes choose a job that has great options for you that if you get really good, it's going to open up lots of options. Choose a job that's interesting to you, Mm -hmm. right? But lower that threshold. you got to lower the threshold from there's one true job and anything else will be a failure to there's lots of jobs that could be the foundation of a very passionate career. Then once you choose a job, it's all about how do I build up as much career capital as fast as possible. So in that first couple of years in a job, you're not looking around saying, do I feel passionate today? Do I love this? What's this job doing for me? You don't think about that. You say, how can I get better? Mm -hmm. How can I make myself more indispensable? How can I give back more to this job. You hone your craft mm-hmm. as fast as possible. How fast can I get better? I talk about in the book that you should think about developing and practicing your career skills, like an athlete or a chess player systematically trains and builds up their skills. Mm-hmm. I like don't just show up and do the work, like train, like try to blow past, you know, other people who are looking around and, and they're on their Instagram and wondering, like, mm-hmm. yeah. is this my passion? Because as soon as you, the faster you get that career capital, the sooner you can invest it in the cool things in your career. And so I have this skill based framework that I've been preaching for a while.
0: I love it. So here's this random idea um, that I was thinking about the other day, and it, and it sounds very similar. So let's see, how am I going to put this together? So the modern view of love is um, romantic feelings yeah. then leads to, sorry, romantic feelings leads, leads to love, and then love. Leads to commitment. So, like, that's kind of like the, the transaction. Yeah. I have these feelings, and eventually, these feelings involves love, and then love involves commitment.
1: Yeah. And so, so love diminishes, then you say, okay, then I don't.
0: Exactly. So, I'm when, not committed. To exactly. the, I don't have to do the commitment anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then it's like, then there's one, you know, there's one person, and I got to find that right person who's going to eventually make that love be available forever. <laughs> yeah. And so, then the Eastern view of it was the actual the inverse. It was and people can argue this all day long, but it was just this is the typical view was it was there was commitment, and then after the commitment, you know, you then will do the romantic things to get the romantic feelings, which will then in time turn into love. Yeah. And so what you saw is that is the idea that fulfillment is less about this instantaneous cupid emotion, euphoric feeling. But actually a process of you actually having to serve and to care and to build and to live a life and to grow with somebody to invest in that person and that person to invest in you, which will then cultivate in this love. Yeah. And so it's very similar to what you're saying when it comes to the work that, you know, for a lot of people, they think is I need to find that love at first sight job. Yeah. You know, and I, there's just one soul job you yeah. know yeah. I mean, yeah. out there for me yeah. that once I get it, then I'll be perfectly happy. You know, but but the reality is that, well, there's probably not just one job, there's probably many jobs you can take. And the more you invest, the more you put into it. Actually, yep. that's where fulfillment and happiness and as the Greek school called eudaimonia is found.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I talk about this study in the book where they looked at a people in the same job. But who had, you know, a variety of different people who'd had this job. And they had them quantify how they thought about the job. And roughly speaking, it was like, it's just a job, I don't care. Uh, it's a career, like it's a stepping stone. And those who thought it was their passion. They used the term true calling in this, in this study, but the same idea, right? Mm-hmm. What was one of the biggest predictors of someone thinking something was their true calling? Years in the job. Mm-hmm. Those who had been there for a while, had built up skills, had invested in it, really knew what was going on, were much more likely to say that this is my this is my true calling. I mean, and I think you're you're absolutely right, is that the notion that good things, like a sense of passion or satisfaction or meaning as the epiphenomenon of living right and doing the right things, is the way that essentially every wisdom tradition thinks mm-hmm. about life. Mm-hmm. And the exception to this is to follow your passion idea. Yeah, it's basically an idea we came up with not that long ago, and are basically looking at all of the wisdom from the east and the west, basically all wisdom traditions, and saying like, "Nah, we know better. Yeah, now nah, that's wrong. Yeah. You just gotta find. You just gotta find the right. You just gotta find the right job, and you'll love it. Yeah. I mean, all of our human wisdom can get distilled down to how do you live a good life? From the Greek eudaimonia notions to, to multiple different uh, Eastern strains of thought, it all comes down to living the right way leads to, as a side effect, these deeper senses of satisfaction and meaning. So there's, there's something, probably not a coincidence, that follow your passion arose during the height of the consumerist 80s. I mean, there's something incredibly inward-looking about yeah. this. What does the job offer me? And is this job making giving me as much as this job? What job is going to has the most to offer me? What's going to make me happier? What's going to be better for me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, whatever, five millennia philosophers <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> spinning over in their graves when they hear that. And so, yeah, it's ahistorical, philosophical, uh, th- this notion that, no, no, it's all about the match. Mm. If you find the match, then you're going to feel good all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which we know is, we sort of know from personal experience is nonsense.
0: And, and that point, it, it ties back into what we're talking about with the social media, is that when we don't have a good grip on human history, yeah. and like I said, the I always say the beauty of progressive ideologies is that, it moves humanity forward, yeah. right? But in some aspects, in my opinion, that sometimes humanity is kind of like a circle. And in reality, sometimes a step forward is actually a step backward to the beginning point because do you begin to wrestle with fundamental ideas to which have kept this thing intact for all these years. Yeah. It's kind of like looking at one of those old um, you know, Greek um, buildings when they used to have those four pillars. Yeah. And you start asking why is this pillar here? Yeah. I don't think we need it. Yeah, let me just... uh, (laughs) Let me just remove it. Yeah, what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, like you just pointed out, what we're seeing is that because we're... Which is like I said, it's it's good things to constantly question things and to improve and innovate. But when we start really removing fundamental things that have caused a human experience to be the human experience and progress forward for all these years... It's really having these disastrous consequences. And I hope that the people who are listening is not just seeing this as doom and gloom, but as constant introspection, like you said, clearing out the clouds and asking yourself, what is good here? What fits and what benefits my life?
1: I I mean, I think you're right about that. And and there's two levels of granularity here. So if you go up to the, let's say the political level, uh, what you want at the political level is you want constant bashing back and forth you want forces of conservatism which and i mean this in the sort of general sense Report, of, 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 of conserving you know old ideas or what's been good in the past and you want forces of progressivism or liberalism challenging that and you want these heads to butt chaos and order
0: perfect balance
1: and actually in the in the u.s for example we tend to have pretty balanced mm-hmm. between those two views that are butting heads and it kind of pendulum swings back and forth but actually it Has really helped the country, the fact that we don't, we we swing back and forth like that. At the individual level, though, you kind of have to do this in your own life. And I think what you're saying is exactly the way to think about it. Mm -hmm. You have to be aware of what we know from historical, philosophical sources, things, ideas that have been around for more than a couple thousand years. There's probably a reason. Mm -hmm. And you got to know about them and trust them. And then also, you have to constantly be looking around and questioning a little bit, like, okay, like in our, you know, is something holding me back here? And so you have to almost, recreate what we see at the political level, you got to be recreating that sort of in your head when mm. you're thinking about things like my friends or my job. And so, you know, I'm with you on that because that's a thread that goes through a lot of my books. There's this new tech, which is incredibly new and progressive in the sense of it's something we've never had before. It opens up options we've never had before. There's a lot of good hidden in it. And then the other thread that goes through it is, yeah, but if you forget the deep truths about how to be mm. a humankind this stuff's going to pull you way off course, which is 100% the, the, the summary of my philosophy on tech, which is you know, new tech can do wonderful things. It can open up stuff we've never been able to do before, but man, it can also cause a lot of trouble. So you have to be really careful and kind of grapple and think about it. And so the way I think about tech is the way I think you think about generally life in general. Yeah. So I think we're on the same wavelength about
0: that. Did you read um, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson? I've read some of it. Okay, so, so obviously you read the beginning and... Um, and i and i kind of referenced it as you were talking about that yin, yin yang balance that chaos and order balance Yeah. because what it talks about is you know with that taoist you know dualistic model the the line in the middle is actually where life is found that perfect line there's yeah. a thin line but it's that perfect balance between the newness of chaos yeah. right yeah. but also the consistency and stability of order yeah. right and so and that's literally like you said that's really what you know a lot of the ideologies is is like oh don't don't remove the baby with the bath water right yeah but it's also like oh this bath water is really bad you know yeah. so it's like just constantly fighting these things and then sometimes they want to throw the baby out with the bath water. yeah so it's constantly yeah living that thin line
1: well see that, that uh, that's exactly how i think about technology mm-hmm. right you think about hey this is this this ability to, to be on that line and say you know what this is great i can using email for example have these sort of, uh, the, this letter based relationship with like some other great thinkers or other professors I work with, you know, that's kind of getting towards the line of the new, like it's easier for me to connect to some of these interesting people. And yet you kind of want to avoid on the other side, Oh, I only look at my phone all the time, or Mm. I'm only on social media. I mean, this is always the game with tech is figuring out, okay, there's some big win in here, you know, like the, the ability to do this, there's probably some huge wins in there. And then surrounding it is if you take that too far, You're going to forget the things that was making your life good before, Mm. which was basically why, you know, minimalism is an ancient idea. I mean, you know, Marcus Aurelius talks about minimalism. Thoreau talks about minimalism. And uh, that's why my philosophy on tech is digital minimalism, something new, something old, because it's all about looking at all these new tools, being excited about it but entirely in the context of what do I know for sure is important to me? Starting from the the pillars that are in the corner of that Greek temple. That's why I tell people to take 30 days away from it all to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. It can take that long sometimes to really figure out what are the pillars in my life. And then once you know that and you trust it, then you can say, okay, now if I use this tech here, that thing's going to amplify. If I use TikTok,
0: uh, <laughs> okay, that's not helping any filler, yeah, right? So yeah, I can yeah, push yeah, that yeah. aside. But yeah, you know, yeah, the ability
1: yeah. to you know email my or text my my buddies that are back in the city I used to live, like actually that's going to support. Uh, and that's the that's the dance you do. How do you take the exciting without getting caught in the side effects? You do it by starting from figuring out, knowing for sure. Yeah, this is the foundational stuff. This is the stuff I care about in my life. If you start from that foundation. Then this tech, it's like your toolbox has a couple more tools. You can build some cooler things. If you don't have the foundation, then you're going to end up, you know, drowning in screwdrivers. If I can torture that metaphor a little bit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, man, that's great. That's great. Well, man, Cal, this has been uh, amazing. I've learned so much and just the wisdom that you're able to provide, the years of research that you've been able to spend your time doing has really benefited my life. And hopefully it's benefited a lot of people in the audience as well. So if there's a message that you'd like to leave in closing, what would that message be?
1: I mean, essentially, when you're thinking about technology, think about this as tools you can put to use for things that you really care about. It should be a means to an end. And as soon as it becomes an end in itself, you're going to get in trouble. So get back in touch with your deep human self, what you really care about, what really moves you, what you really want to do with your time, and then deploy tech as needed to help it. You do that we're way better off than we were 20 years ago, right? We're talking about yeah, the yeah. chronological sort of, yeah. sort of egoism or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. no, no, the, the tech we have now makes us way better yeah, off than, yeah, than yeah, 20 yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But only if we deploy that towards the things that really matter.
0: I love it. I love it. And where can the people reach you at?
1: Well, so I've never had a social media account, so I'm <laughs> a little bit hard to <laughs> yeah. reach. Uh, but I do have a website, calnewport.com. And I'm a blogger. So I've been writing essays on there every week since 2007. So you go go to calnewport.com, you can sort of dive into the the world of my ideas. Awesome.
0: All right. I was going to close on this, but I'm just curious. (laughs) What is probably uh, a new theory that you have? It's not, you haven't formated it, you're not too confident on it, but it's like a, uh not controversial, but just something that you feel like yeah. is really gonna challenge the ethos of society.
1: Oh, so so I'm working now. The big idea I'm working on now, back in the world of work, is I'm convinced the way that especially in office work, the way that we work today, which is just constantly email, constant slack, constantly mm-hmm. sending messages around, I'm convinced that's going away. Mm. I'm convinced that this way of working where we constantly communicate is something that is actually causing more harm than good. And that like the future of the world of work is going to be one where you're not on a million different communication channels all the time that we're going to look back at this period now and say, wow, that was a dumb way to work. Mm. Yeah, so, so this book I'm working on, the title is A World Without Email.
0: Mm. So yeah. <laughs> we'll Man. see. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much, yeah. guys. Guys, be sure to reach out to Cal. You know, make sure you check out his blog, copies, books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you read books. Go ahead and check it out. My name is Hafiz, and I'm joined by Cal Newport. And we got a roommates, guy, Thank you so much, and have a great day.